Hey everyone, welcome. So this episode is all about going for the heart. We believe here at Trinity Reformed Church that a pastor's job is not just to go for the mind, uh, but also and essentially to go for the heart. Both things. It has to do. We have to do both things as pastors. This has been at the center of Tim Bailey's ministry for many, many years here at Trinity Reformed Church, and so we hope you enjoy this conversation. We hope it's helpful to you. In the studio today, I have pastors Tim Bailey and Max Carell. My name is Lucas Weeks, and this is the Out of Our Minds podcast. So I wanted to talk about something related to pastoral ministry, and that is going for the hearts of the people, go aiming for their consciences and not just their brains. I mean, I, I sort of made a joke to the men a few seconds ago that I can't get enough of this um, because something that I've learned from Tim over, over many years and something that I still struggle to avoid um, mm. because... Well, we all do. Yeah, yeah. And why is it so difficult? What I want to talk about is going for it with people. As a pastor, our job is to direct people using everything that God has given us at our disposal to heaven. <laughs> There's nothing off limits. There's no compartmentalization when it comes to facing God. It's all or nothing. And pastors are maybe <laughs> the, the class of men, if you think of classes of men or of professions, we can become very sophisticated and very good at compartmentalization. <laughs> um, but fathers in the home can do that also. Uh, we can do that very well also. And why? Well, it's because the alternative is utterly terrifying. Um, it's utterly terrifying. That's what I wanted to talk about today. I wanted to talk about what it means for a pastor to go for the heart and to try to unpack that a little bit. What does it mean for a father to go for the heart of their child? What are their, What is it that they're doing and going for their heart? And if we think about, if we think about a pastor standing, he preaches, and a pastor could preach, and he, I can't help but uh, combine going for the heart with with what I understand to be a prophetic side to preaching. Okay, and and you could say a prophetic side. You could have a prof, pro, prophetic side to preaching that would just be kind of uh, like uh, about the culture or something yeah, like out that. There, yeah, out there, out there in a way. Mm-hmm. And there, you could have a father in a home who could be that way. He's out there in a way. Yeah. Or you can have a father who's bringing and presenting God to his children, and he is he is presenting God to them there, each one at home. He is going for their hearts, but he's really going to call their hearts to God. Mm-hmm. But it's calling their hearts to God in in many respects by calling their hearts to himself mm. because he's really calling them to serve his God. Serve mm. my God. You know, where if you if he's being prophetic about out there, he's saying serve the God. But you said it's important for a dad to be prophetic. To have a kind of a prophetic ministry. Well, but what is that? 
what does that be mean? prophetic. Well, yeah, it, that's if, what I that's what I'm getting at because you know I'm thinking. Well, what if 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 a pastor? I often think that pastoral ministry that's good has to be prophetic. But what does that mean? It's not that we predict the future. No, well, but it is that you are have the end in mind. I think. Well, and that we declare that something's at stake. Mm. That something really is at stake. Mm-hmm. And a father can declare something's at stake to their child. But. Think of what you said to me Sunday in between the two sermons. How do you know you're prophetic? I Not can't quite pathetic, remember. But <laughs> prophetic. I can't remember, Tim. I remember you came to me. You said I all know. the blood of the prophets. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was thinking about Jesus talking to, he says, woe to you. And how many woes are there? I can't remember, seven or 11 or something. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, and he grow to you, woe to you, woe to you. And he's he's not just talking about them because he's going to expand it all right after he says what I'm about to say, but he comes to the end and he says he says, Well, from the from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who died between the horns of the altar, all of that blood is upon this generation. Wow. And I thought to myself, why did Jesus put all the blood? And then he goes in, the next verse is, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often at Gehen I wanted to take you and bring you, and you rejected me. You Mm. wouldn't have me. And he's just declaring it to the whole city, right? And I thought, why did he curse that generation with all of the blood of the prophets? Well, then I thought about, it occurred to me, this is when Annie and I were listening to the Bible this past week. It occurred to me that what he what's said in Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, it says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That all of Scripture testifies to Jesus Christ, and that the spirit of the prophets, the prophets were declaring Jesus. They were declaring things that they didn't understand or see fully, but they were wonderful things to them. Because they were all just, they were all uh, foretelling what was coming in the fulfillment with Jesus Christ. And suddenly Jesus is there with that generation, and the scribes and Pharisees are there, and he, uh, he came to his own, but his own received him not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he said, The prophets have been testifying about me from Abel hmm. to now, hmm. and I'm here. The testimony of me is the spirit of prophecy. I'm here right now. Their blood is on you. It's all on you. And so you know if you're a prophet as a pastor, if people are trying to get rid of you. <laughs> and not trying to get rid of you because you molested your secretary. Mm. Or committed adultery. Or are greedy. Or are a lazy dog. But because you are a prophet... And this is so important. You can't begin to care for your people until you have the spirit of prophecy. Because only the inspiration of the prophet Jesus and the prophet John the Baptist and the prophet Paul and Peter and Hosea and Amos, only these prophets can inspire a man to stand against the anger and hatred 
that will occasion him. If you read the Reformed Pastor by Baxter, it's what he talks about. He says, if you ever come out of the pulpit and say in person what you just said to the pulpit to somebody, they'll say, well, what's wrong with you? All these other pastors are very entertaining mm. men, and they have a good sense of humor, and you, you're so serious. And so what I wanted to do is have you go through that and then say to the people listening, a pastor knows he's a prophet if he is a servant who is not greater than his master. Mm -hmm. Hmm. The thing that strikes me about Christian celebrities who everybody has such adulation for is that they're always greater than Jesus. Hmm. None of them ever, ever suffer the opposition that Jesus suffered. Jesus said, no servant is greater than his master. If they hate me, they'll hate you too. He Precious said, Bible promise there. Yeah, yeah. And so it's very, very important that we start out by saying that you know them by their fruit. If their fruit is uniformly positive, all men speak well of them as all the members of Gospel Coalition and all the famous celebrities, everyone speaks well of them. You say, oh, no, not the New York Times. And I say, yeah, but everybody who's religious, mm. you say, oh, not the liberals. And I say, well, they're not religious. <laughs> you know, do I have to teach you that? Those people are who Jesus says are false. They are wolves. Jesus says this, and you know it because all men speak well of them. Mm -hmm. All right. But if you have a pastor that all men don't speak well of, then you may have an actual shepherd who loves his sheep. Now, I want to make a, a clarification here. There are many men who are culture warriors, and, and, and they wear the, the robes and carry the titles of a pastor. Okay. And because they're in conflict and they have lots of adversaries, you may be fooled into thinking that they are a pastor who's a prophet. Mm -hmm. But they're not. And you know that because all their enemies are out there, and they surround themselves with sycophants. And so they have a huge media presence because everybody just loves watching them out there jousting in front of the, the, the court ladies. You know, they, they, they pull out their lance and their sword, and they ride their stallion, and they have this riposte and that response and this, you know, catchy saying, but it never cuts their own constituents never and so their their own constituents never get angry at them so again i want to say culture warriors are not pastors they're not shepherds they're not prophets what they are is controversialists hmm. okay and a controversialist never loves his sheep because he's too busy loving his own voice and himself and the sheep know the man who loves them because they can, they they resonate. You know, Jesus says, "My sheep hear my voice." And and David and they resonate with the voice uh, of the shepherd. And and Jesus, David, you know, all three of us know that they love us. Oh yeah, because we are prophets to them in person. You will never be loved by the men of your church until you say God's no to them. 
And it takes a heck of a lot of faith to do that. It scares the snot out of you. Mm-hmm. That's probably where it goes back to a father and children, because a father disciplines his children because he loves his children. He is saying no. And he's saying no to his children at the point of representing God to them. And so his children learn to love him for the fact that he says no. They also love that in the context of saying no, he gathers them up Mm -hmm. in his arms and he Mm -hmm. loves them and he blesses them Mm -hmm. and he comforts them as God does his his children. But he also says no. No. Let me read from the book of Proverbs, the 23rd chapter. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Now, if it says that to us, it must mean that our inclination is to hold back discipline from a child, right? And so then you wonder, well, why would we hold back discipline from the child if the Bible says that the father that doesn't love his child has a bastard of a child, Hebrews? Do not hold back discipline from the child. And then it anticipates our objection, says, although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. Hmm. Well, of course, that is what our wives always tell us. (laughs) Our wives always tell us that if you discipline a child, whether it's corporal or verbal, that he's going to die. He's going to die. He can't take it, you know? Yeah. And so the Bible says, although you strike him with a rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with a rod. In other words, it turns into a command. Mm -hmm. And rescue his soul from Sheol. So in other words, we're not to hold back. Anticipating our objections, they're met with, no, he won't die. Yep. Then the command, you shall strike him with a rod. And then the reason, by doing this, you will rescue him from hell. Wow. All right, now, it goes on. My son, if your heart is wise, my own heart also will be glad. And so you just see the dad there mm-hmm. going, come on, son, I want to be happy. Do you know how depressing it is for me to watch you be so gay, so blinky, so hipsterish, so proud. such a, yeah, such a proud and weak and wussy specimen of manhood. Come on, son. If your heart is wise, my own heart also will be glad, and my inmost being will rejoice when your lips speak what is right. You know, we don't hear that as pleading, you know? It's a declarative statement. But any dad that says that to his son, he's reduced to pleading. Do you know how happy it'll make me? You know, could you please want to make me happy? I'd like to be happy. Your mother doesn't like me talking to you. Would you please, 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 please? <laughs> and, and I'm telling you, that's, that's how I talk to my kids still. <laughs> I mean, can we please lower ourselves to let them know that they're really hurting us if they don't give us what we want? What we want is for them to be wise. Mm-hmm. Then... It says, do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Then listen, my son, and be wise and direct your heart in the way. Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters of meat, for the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. Now, at this point, 
anybody that knows anything about being a pastor knows this is precisely what we deal with 24 hours a day, you know, seven days a week, you know, 30 days a month, year in, year out with the people of our church. Children who choose drugs and alcohol and laziness and the suffering and torment that this is to their parents and their grandparents, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, I'm, I'm going to keep reading. Listen to your father. This is still the same section. Listen to your father who begot you. Now, that's a pretty fundamental claim. Mm-hmm. I begot you. Listen to your father who begot you. You know, that is as fundamental a claim on any man as you can have. You know, you actually I say, brought you into this. Yeah, world. you say to Asher, Asher, I begot you. <laughs> You've never said it. I've never said I've it. I've never <laughs> said it. I don't think any of us have ever said it. But listen to your father who begot you and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and instruction understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. So once again, it's pretty pathetic. You know, it'll make me happy. You know, it's lowering yourself. And he who sires a wise man will be glad in him. Let your father and your mother be glad and let her rejoice who gave birth to you. Give me your heart heart my son and let your eyes delight in my ways Hmm. i mean we're all so much more precious about our egos and our stature and our respect than we should be and and for this reason we never plead the way this section of proverbs pleads Hmm. We never say, this is what's going to make me happy. After church this last Sunday, I stood behind a family, and one of the, their dad is an elder who I absolutely adore. I mean, I just d- drop dead love the man. Mm-hmm. And I watched his two teenage sons while he was lifting his hands and praising God. I saw them stand there like lumps on the walk. <laughs> and it tore me up. Mm. One of them was much worse than the other one. The other one, there's been growth in. And so, lo and behold, as that young man left church Sunday, I had a message for him (laughs) in the door of the church. And I said to him, listen to me. It was very serious and intent. I said, "Do, do you think that I don't see how you refuse to worship God as your father worships? And I said, this hurts me. It hurts me, and I don't like it. You know, there are other people waiting to say goodbye, (laughs) you know? And I'm talking to him there in the door, and I said to him, listen, I said, I am desperate. Now, remember, this is my second to last Sunday at this church. I said, I am desperate to see your father's son's honor him. And I haven't seen it yet. Hmm. And you owe it to him. Your father is such a prince of a man. He deserves to have sons that give themselves up to humility when they worship God. And at that point, finally, it's too much for him. He began to argue with me. Yeah. Well, I, you know, you, you know, and I said, 
I said to him, do you think I am stupid? <laughs> do you think I really don't know who and what you are? Now, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this would think that I'm a monster and that because of that, there are only 10 people in our church. Yeah. And of the 10, only one likes me. <laughs> I guarantee you that that son loves me much more because of what I did to him. And I know his brother does. And I know his dad adores me. Now, what's the point? Most people would listen to this and they'd think, well, you're a monster. Mm. But I'm not a monster. I'm not at all. I think we should constantly be pleading for the people in our churches and for our children, our daughters and our sons to desire to please us. Mm -hmm. And that involves telling them when they don't. Mm -hmm. Because something is at stake. Eternity. Eternity is at stake. Not eternity because they please us, but eternity because the evidence of their actions that do please us show that they are turning their attention to God. And, you know, people can argue about this and say, well, just because he didn't lift his hands like his dad did, that doesn't mean anything. And I'd say, like I said to him, I'll say to you, I'm not an idiot. I've spent my life loving and hugging the children of that man's family. Yeah, I have poured myself into those kids emotionally. I have been un unrelentingly, relentlessly positive, affectionate, this was the first time that I have ever, one of the brothers, I've helped him learn how to start a landscaping business and been involved in the choice of lawnmowers and trailers and how you winterize your things. He, he's called me, okay? This is, this, this is in a context of love and affection. Mm -hmm. And as we go into a culture that is increasingly hateful and persecuting and totalitarian against anything uniquely Christian, particularly at the, at the gaps, like sexuality, like the value of life, like the meaning of education, mm -hmm. all these things, we're not going to get anywhere with our children if they don't adore us. Adore us. Our children have to give us their heart if we're even going to be able to work with them. Mm. If they're not going to be dried out stone putty, if they're going to be supple, workable putty, you know, Play-Doh, mm. if they're going to allow us to form them according to the kingdom of heaven and God, it's not going to be enough for us to have authority. What we have to have is their heart. Mm -hmm. And if we have their heart, I mean, I'll never forget, David, when you first came here, would you describe to them that little teaching you gave me about the nature of a wife that submits to her husband? You talked about how what influence a wife who's submissive or a wife who has to discipline her husband. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, would you go into it, okay. that? Yeah. It's interesting learning how to work in relationship. A man works in a relationship at his work, and he's a subordinate. And a subordinate has to learn how to deal with somebody who's in authority over them, even at the point of when they can help the person in authority over them who needs some kind of discipline to change something, right? Mm, okay. I, I remember this movie that was uh, uh, Pollyanna, this Hallmark version of Pollyanna. And there was a scene in the movie where the maid in the house, you know, aunt, aunt whatever her name, Aunt Polly. Yep. 
the namesake for Polly and his namesake. Aunt Polly is a is a uh, uh, spinster, uh, angry, controlling, and Polly is a a free spirit. The girl that comes to live with her, she's an orphan, and Aunt Polly is showing her no love and is just being awful. And at one point, this maid is in the kitchen, and Aunt Polly comes into the kitchen realizing something's wrong. And basically, in a very vulnerable moment, the, the, the woman who runs the house and is the wealthy woman, and the maid is like shucking peas or something, and the woman says, well, uh, I just don't know what to do with this girl. She's like at her wit's end. And the maid says something just serving, faithful, always there. She just says, well, if I may say, ma'am, Mm-hmm. And then what what ensues is this mm-hmm. is this rapier <laughs> line a couple of lines where she inviscerates Aunt Polly. <laughs> but she doesn't say it nastily yeah, or anything. Yeah. Yeah. It's just very calmly said, You are not loving, and that girl needs love. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. just very direct. And that's the end of it. And Aunt Polly walks out and she is transformed. And uh, I've always thought about this as men who work in jobs and are subordinate to people. We have a responsibility to learn how to help those that we're subordinate to wives with their husbands. If they work with in and uh, work with their husbands, they have such power in serving their husbands. The Bible talks about a gentle and quiet spirit. Let me tell you, that's a powerful force. Mm-hmm. A gentle and quiet spirit is powerful mm-hmm. because then at a moment, at a critical moment when a man's in the kitchen and he's saying, I just don't know what to do, and his wife puts his hand, her <laughs> hand on his arm and, he sa- and she says, well, honey, mm-hmm. if I may say. <laughs> and pretty soon he's like oh okay are those my intestines in my hand yeah, that's exactly right you remember, you remember when i was really upset about something a few weeks ago you remember that and my wife asked me three questions and i mean i was beside myself with anger yeah, yeah. and sitting at home just didn't know what way to go she asked me three questions. It just flips me. I remember we were counseling a man who had a military police background, and he was on opioids for his uh, for a physical problem, a lot of pain that he had. And so from the very beginning of him coming here, we had our doctor, Adam Spady, uh, he agreed that Adam would know what his pain medications levels were and could talk to his pain doctor. Hmm. And after a couple of years, Adam came to me and he said, we have trouble. The doctors tried to get him to go down. He won't go down. And he is at a level at his age that he could never increase until he dies. So he's at the absolute top of his pain medication and he refuses to decrease it. So what Adam was saying is it's time for, you know, it's time for confrontation. What do they call it with intervention? Intervention, yeah. So we got David, you were there, I was mm-hmm. there, Stephen Baker was there, the man and his wife were there, um, Adam Spady was there. It seems like there was one other person, but anyhow. So we talked to him. You remember mm-hmm. that meeting went on and on and on. And he got angrier and angrier. And he's a formidable dude. He's formidable verbally. He's formidable physically. 
and his will was uh, no less formidable. <laughs> and he was just furious that we were telling him he had to decrease. But he was cornered because the physician he'd agreed to submit to, who was also an elder of our church, was saying, you have to decrease, and he would not do it. He was so angry. And why don't you go ahead and tell what happened? Well, what I remember is at a certain point in the context, as he's so angry, his wife, who is, you know, the the size of a teacup, reaches over and just kind of pats him on the leg. And I can't remember her exact words at that moment, but they were like. She didn't say anything. She whispered. Yeah, yeah, honey. She whispered in his ear, and immediately, (laughs) he was putty. He just said, I'm sorry, you guys are right. This had been gone on over two hours. (laughs) Just so you know, when when he says we're right, it's not, there was... There was medical proof. It's not like we practice medicine. Yeah. First of all, our elder was a doctor. Secondly, he had been in touch with the pain management guy. Thirdly, the pain management guy had actually told us the course of action that needed to happen, and this was the very course of action that needed to happen. (laughs) So yeah, we didn't enjoy this meeting. (laughs) You know, it's not a meeting that we wake up in the morning and say, "Oh, goody, yes, let's manage someone's meds today." (laughs) (laughs) All of a sudden, he said, "You're right." It has to go down. Hmm. And so we looked over at her and we said, what on earth did you just say to him? And she looked at us and she said, I said, be soft. (laughs) That's all she said for two hours. You know, she touched him and said, be soft. Oh my goodness. And you know that after that, I, I think it was six months later, he made a point of telling me that his pain decreased as he decreased his drugs. So this rebound thing of drugs that, that mm. often happens. Um, and so God blessed him with less pain mm-hmm. because of his submission. It wasn't simply that he no longer had to face down every person that was important to him in his yeah. life. You know, It was that his pain <laughs> decreased, you know. Oh, that's an amazing story. Um, well, I want to highlight the role of relationships here because the examples you've given, you know, I'm trying to listen to them through modern ears and it's like, by definition, what you're doing is wrong. It's wrong to use the weight of relation for a pastor to use the weight of relationship, which I know it sounds crazy to us here, but it, it, it's, seems to me that there's a lot of evangelical Christians and a lot of churches who would say what you're doing is wrong to use the weight of your relationship to to get him or her to make a change or for you to do that for your children especially for the children that's where I was going to go with yeah, this yeah yeah so you think about it it's wrong okay use the weight of your relationship hey use your love to try to influence your children hey you know, you get your child comes to this age, they turn 18, and the magical thing happens where the government says, You're no longer responsible for them. Yeah. And they feel like, Oh, great, I am free. Right. 
And what you don't want to have happen at that moment is them to say, I'm free, because I think that indicates something. Now, there's mm-hmm. a degree to which all of them think they're free a little yeah, bit, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But th- it really indicates something, because they don't, what they don't realize is that my life is about to move from, from uh, the mediation of my parents, who are authorities, who are authorities bringing that authority with love, and I'm about to be completely exposed to authorities who come at me and who are going to govern me and they don't have any care for me at all. Mm-hmm. The police, the judge, yeah. the, the school, uh, the, uh, the uh, professor at the school, the school administrator, the boss at work, whatever. Oh yeah, they really love you. Mm-hmm. When they lay the law down, you know, it's going to come with all kinds of hugs and kisses and warm yeah. softness. You understand what I'm yeah. saying? And what do we do as parents but teach our children about governance? And that's part of understanding the fear of the Lord, that God governs us and that we should be governed by his good law. Mm. And if we teach our children about God's good love and governance of us, we introduce them to something to someone bigger than all of the authorities that will be around them after they're uh, of majority and are emancipated from our homes, because they're going to know the God who governs all, and they're going to understand how to live in this world. But isn't, I mean, part of what you're saying is that, as is that calling them to serve the God that you serve, um, is partly calling them to be loyal to you. And doesn't that muddy the waters? You said that we would be sort of surprised to hear you say that this is viewed as abuse and this is viewed as something that we should not do. We're not surprised. Pastors understand culture better than (laughs) 13-year-olds, let alone (laughs) 21-year-olds. Yeah. That's our job. Our job is to anticipate and know every objection of every person in our church, no matter how old they are, before that objection ever occurs to them. Yeah. Okay? We're not stupid. (laughs) That's why I said that to that young man. I am not stupid. Don't tell me this isn't true of you. I watch you every time I preach. Mm. You know, we watch the people we preach to. We have a pretty good idea what their response is because we know the rest of their lives, we know their family, we know the face they carry in and out of church, we know how they look at their husband. I mean, this last Sunday, you remember me saying, some of you men, I have spent literally years pleading with you to love your children. Mm. Years, and I will leave with you still refusing to love your children. Do you remember that? And then I said, and do you know how I know you don't love your children? I know it because I watch you when you look at your children. And there is no tenderness and affection and pride in them. Hmm. Your eyes are dead. Your children are a pain in the rear to you. Mm-hmm. And you're just out to get them to respond to you the way you want them to respond because other people are watching. Mm-hmm. Okay, now listen. Of course that's how people view it. They view it as abuse. But would it be abuse if my son, who was 13, had talked my ear off about every single thing that happened in his life during every single day of a full week and finally on Saturday, I were to give him bourbon with his milk and make him drink the bourbon so that he would fall asleep and go to, and go to bed. Would that be abuse? 
Well, of course it would be abuse. How about, you were just trying to get him to shut up is what you're trying to say. Well, no, I'm trying to make a point. Can we please quantify exactly what abuse is? Mm. How about if I make brownies and give them to my 17-year-old daughter who's trying to forget the fact that some boyfriend just broke off his relationship with her and I put dope in the brownies, <laughs> marijuana in the brownies. Yeah. And she all of a sudden has a different experience. <laughs> How about if we go out and find some peyote? Now, listen, I'm being serious. Everybody would say that it's abuse to give peyote because it's illegal. Yeah. All right. Most people would say it's abuse to give them marijuana if you hide it in brownies, right? Yeah, yeah. Most people would say it's wrong to give them alcohol to help them to forget their problems, especially when they're 13, even if they're your son. Yeah. Maybe a little wine, a little sherry. They might like the sweetness. Yeah. All right. Then we keep working our way through what is abuse? Mm. What actually is abuse? And abuse is the uh, wrongful use of authority. Mm. Okay, that's what abuse is. All right. Is it wrongful use of authority to point out to the one who is under you that you gave him birth? Hmm. That you are his biological father? Is well, that abuse? No. But we're working hard culturally to. But I just read from yeah. Proverbs. Yeah. Listen to your father who got you. Yeah. I, how do I get people to realize that either scripture fixes our sensibilities about what is and isn't proper mm -hmm. in every area of our life or culture will? Yeah. Yes. And this is the big lie of culture. Yeah. Culture thinks that uh, we should have this. Uh, Ali Ali Infri, and that children, and it's seen in everything. It's abusive to give direction. Yeah, it's abusive to expect something. Well, because if you give direction or expect something, you're going to channel them somewhere wh where, and we think that they're not being channeled somewhere otherwise, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that is a lie mm -hmm. out of hell. Mm -hmm. They're all being channeled. Yeah, they're yeah. being channeled every day, ten thousand times to every time we would say, "I, I, I am your father. I gave you birth. I am your." Ten thousand times to every time we would say anything directive to our children, they are being channeled in another direction, mm -hmm. constantly, constantly. And there is no greater abuse than to call someone to repentance, and in in particular, well, in the world, to yeah. the world, there's no greater right. abuse. But really. Abuse is to leave children to the devices of the world. Right. Indeed. That is abuse. That's right. And yet that is precisely what these women gossips online are always trying to get pastors to do, which mm -hmm. is, look, here's a man that was abusive. He used his influence over people to get more money, to get his ego stroke, to you know, be able to gamble, to do this, that, and the other thing. You know, look at his look at his yard. He has a whole herd of deer in his yard, and he lets his friends come on. And, you know, it's like when Ron Enroth out at Westmont was writing about churches that abuse, and he used the illustration of a pastor who had his, his softball team at his church. He wasn't happy with how they're playing. So he said to them at the end of it, now next game, 
to punish you, I am going to make all of you play with the opposite hand that is your strong hand. So all the right-handers were going to have to play with their left hand, and all the left-handers, you're going to have to switch bat, you know. And and it's like, we're supposed to be concerned about that. It's like <laughs> they trot out the most asinine things in the world and use it as a specter that they can show to people. And what do the people learn? Well, they don't learn to to not be involved with harvest yeah. and with its leader, what they learn is don't ever allow any leader to lead you and certainly don't let him rebuke you and certainly do not, do not listen to him if it makes you uncomfortable. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah. And it's just, and here we feel free when we're not, at, don't have a pastor who ever talks to us personally or admonishes or rebukes us. Meanwhile, we're told that we can't have toilets that you only have to flush once. Yeah, yeah. And the federal government tells us this. And pretty soon we're not going to be able to have single-use plastic bags. <laughs> and this is the force of law. And, and yet we have people telling us that pastors and fathers who plead with their children, Give me your heart. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I begot yeah. you. Give me your heart. You're going to make me happy. You're going to make your mother happy. You know, we want to be proud of you in our old age. Treat your mother with respect. Listen, I'll say one other thing about this. People can think, and I know on this podcast, people are constantly thinking that we are, um, what's the word they would use that we're unaware that's the nice word they'd use clueless out to lunch stupid you know culturally unengaged uh have never heard the word contextualization you know (laughs) i mean i could keep going in other words that we don't know tim keller exists that's what they think about us you know he has such a better presentation such a better bedside manner you know and and he just goes down so much more easily you know and what I always tell them is, listen, do you think I can't do what he does? I remember my sister coming to our church. She gets home. We've had communion. She's a she's a she's a, an intense feminist. I'll use a euphemism, an intense feminist. Okay, we get home. She sits down in our study and she looks at me and she says, "Tim, I want you to know I will never come back to your church until you have women serving communion." And it was just the classic exchange between people who, in their conceit, think that you're a bumpkin and that you certainly didn't make a decision to do what you did. Mm-hmm. And so I said to her, "Deb, you know, actually, that wasn't. We weren't." ignorant we weren't overlooking something obvious it's a principle with us yeah it's a principle and so people listening here have to realize that these are commitments that we have decided are biblical we look at jacob and i mean excuse me we look at oh benjamin and his dad. We look at Joseph and his dad. And so when Isaac comes to Egypt and you see him falling all over and his son falling all over him with tears, hugging and crying. Mm. And this is all through scripture. You look at Paul saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders in Miletus. 
And it's so emotional and tender. What is that, abuse? Mm. Is that like equivalent to a guy having a private uh, hunting ground for his rich friends with 70 deer that he keeps there? You know, should we get people to be just as opposed to both the pastor that hugs and loves and cries with people as he does with the ones that he lets shoot deer (laughs) on his? I mean, look. The thing I want to say to people is Jesus doesn't tell us to avoid the things that the online gossip women tell us to avoid. Yeah. What Jesus tells us to do is to look at the fruit. Hmm. And what I want to say is if you want to know whether or not going for the heart of your child by pleading your love for him, reminding him you've begotten him, hugging him, kissing him, uh, disciplining him. Same thing with pastors and elders and mm-hmm. older women of the church mm-hmm. with the people of the church. Exact same thing. In the, in the context of the church, you know, you think, you said this many times, you think it's a failure if there's actual relationships at stake. Mm-hmm. You know, a pastor is, is likely to think, oh, this is a failure. But, you can't do ministry without relationships and being Paul, at stake. You can't read one of his letters without seeing his relationships. Mm-hmm. Max just picked up his Bible and he's looking through it. He's going <laughs> to. And so you have to look at the fruit. And if you look at the fruit of pastors who admonish the other men of the church, mm. what you unerringly will see is the kind of tenderness that Paul has with Timothy and with a whole host of men. You look at the end of Romans, you know? Well, and, but the, the thing you have to say is most pastors became pastors because they like reading books mm-hmm. and they think they're kind of smart and they wouldn't mind standing in front of people and talking, <laughs> teaching, <laughs> teaching. Yeah. What are children doing but being formed? Isn't that what children are? Isn't that what's happening? Isn't that the with point? Children? That's yeah. the point of children. Think it and think what Paul says to the Galatians. My children, my children, with whom I am again in labor until what? Christ is formed in you. Christ is formed in you. Mm-hmm. And what do pastors do? But we spend all of our time working to see Christ formed, working to see him formed in the people of our church. And eternity and hangs what in the do balance. fathers do but look, work to see the children, their children formed in as Christ. they ought to be formed in Christ? That's mm-hmm. what fathers do. And what does the world say? But no, 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 no. Let children form themselves. Yeah. <laughs> And then the government does and its then, damned best yeah, to take that job over for the parents. Exactly. And what they, what they are unwilling to realize is nobody forms themselves. Yeah. yeah Everybody true. is being formed. Yeah. Everyone is being formed. And you're either going to be formed into the image of Jesus Christ or you're going to be formed into the image of the devil. But everybody is being formed. Hmm. And our work as pastors is to work to form Christ, to see Christ formed. And what, how do we, you know, when we're dealing with teenagers and lines after church, when we're having these private conversations, this is what we're doing. We're pleading with them. We are pleading with them like the father 
in Proverbs. We are working to see Christ formed in you. Mm-hmm. We, we want to, before we die, we would like to see the evidence of Christ formed in you. We would be so happy if we could leave this world and know that Christ was formed in you. You know, as we've been talking about what is and isn't abuse, some of it, so much of it centers around anything that we would usurp the dignity and the centrality of what are today called relationships with significant others, you know, family mm. of origin, you know. It used to be said father, mothers, and children, okay? And, and specifically in there, anything that the mother would not approve of that the father does. Mm. So what we really have done is we have declared an ollie-ollie in free to women to control everything, their marriage, their home, the, the, the growth of their children. And men today are not to do anything that any woman, whether she's an observer or participant, would disapprove of. Hmm. And so I, I tell people that in churches that are conservative, that it's always the wives of the elders that control the worship and specifically the music. Hmm. And that's why in most churches, it's high classical, even though none of the rest of their lives during the week, during the year, do they listen to any of it. Although I grew up in a home where we actually did listen to WFM, WFMT, classical music, but nevertheless. So women are the ones who declare whether or not a pastor's abusive, who declare whether or not their husband's abusive, who declare whether or not a father is abusive. Mm -hmm. And women are by nature risk averse, which God made them that way and it's good. Yeah. All right. And so what you end up doing is you end up having this stultifying pressure on you as pastors, as elders, as fathers, as husbands that suppresses any no, suppresses any admonishment, suppresses any rebuke, suppresses any bringing up of eternity to give weight to the discussion that's going on with your children and certainly suppresses any putting, um, uh, how would I say this? Any putting at risk your relationship with your children. So the one thing you must never do with your wife watching is say to the children that if it comes to it and our church excommunicates you, You and I, from that moment on, will not have the father-son relationship we've had now. Now, if you think of a statement that would be more offensive to a mother than any other statement, it would be that. Mm. That you would actually, that you would put in jeopardy your relationship with the children and therefore her relationship with the children because it's bound up with the father, right? For religion you know religion for spiritual things for obedience and what right did the elders have to discipline your child anyhow they don't understand your child the way you understand your child okay now listen Mm -hmm. so what i've been thinking about is as we've been talking about perceptions about whether or not the kind of taking of risks and throwing everything including this 
the kitchen sink into the mix in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul, you know. I was just reading and I read this, and this is from uh, Luke 11. And just incidentally, all of a sudden, we have this. It says, while Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Okay, that's the full quote of the women. But he, Jesus said, quote, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Hmm. Now, why am I reading that? I'm reading that because we want to see Christ formed in our children. Mm. We want to see Christ formed in the sheep of our flocks. And it is impossible to keep eternity burned in our eyeballs, as Luther said, if we're always trying to make sure that mama is happy. Yeah. Jesus, on a number of occasions, disciplines the presumption of his mother upon him. Mm. This one is not her. It's other women who are making the claim on him. But then you remember where she and his brothers came to visit him. He was in a house. They couldn't get in. And the message is given to him. You know, your mother and brothers are outside. And he says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Those who do the will of the father. It's the same responses here. We have to decide whether scripture's going to establish our expectations mm -hmm. for leadership, for authority, for fatherhood, which is really what it is. Yeah. It's all fatherhood. Yeah, yeah. Or whether we're going to be at the mercy of online women gossips. You're really asking the question, are we going to love people? You know, so I, I think about that for myself. Am I, I, I ask God to give me a heart mm. to love people, to not be self-protective, to, to, go for it with relationships to call people to have faith. And I think that's the question for fathers. And, you know, you could feel very superior sitting back there and not demanding these things of your son. You can make yourself feel like, Oh, I've given him the choice or I've not trying to, da, 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 da. I don't know. But I want to say, no, dad, you are deciding not to love your son not to put yourself out there and run the risk of the pain of it. So pastors, I mean, we have to love the people. We have to love our children. Lower yourself to let them know that they hurt you. Mm -hmm. Lower yourself to tell them what you're afraid of. Lower yourself to tell them what you desire, that you desire for them to make their mother happy. And the, of course, the lie is we, we might die. <laughs> And, and actually, we might. We might. But it makes me think of, you know, the song. You know, that's out of well, the ground. Well, explain what blossoms. you mean. Yeah, I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> Your kid might turn you in, you know. To CPS. To CPS. Yeah. Your wife might divorce you. You're, and you'll lose everything. You, you might get fired as You a might pastor. get fired. Yeah, you might get fired you as might a pastor. Get recalled as an elder. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, the stakes are high. We're not, we're not cheap. I don't think sitting around this table thinking of like I'm not saying this cheaply. We've actually thought about it, and 
not to say that we are always faithful, uh, but um, <laughs> but we tell our people how faithless we are. Yeah, and we try to encourage. That, and that's why I want to talk about this because I I want to encourage myself <laughs> in it and remind myself about it constantly, and I want to remind our listeners about it because the the thing is, I say that the chances are you might die, and I think that's true, but. It's it's precisely what God uses. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's the death, my life for yours is precisely what God uses to build His church. Thanks so much for listening. My name is Lucas Weeks, and the conversation today was with Tim Bailey and Max Carell. We serve as pastors at Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. For more great content, please visit warhornmedia.com. To support this podcast, you can donate at patreon.com slash out of our minds. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.